It's 1964 in England. I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles is blaring from store windows, and Rolling Stones posters are plastered everywhere. The men all have bowl haircuts and long sideburns. And for some reason, all the girls were loving it. Rock and pop music have officially taken England by storm. But this musical sensation wasn't born in Britain. It was a new import from America, specifically from the heart and soul of a black gospel singer named Sister Rosetta Tharp. And finally, Rosetta was here in England to show these boys how it's done. Rosetta was booked for the folk blues and gospel caravan tour in England. She was playing at an abandoned railroad station out in the open air. It was a rainy day, but that didn't stop crowds from gathering to see her. She pulls up to the event in a horse-drawn carriage. Yeah, pretty badass. She's dressed to the nines in a wig, in some jewelry, and in a fur coat, because of course. And she rocks the house down. Sister Rosetta strolls down the railroad station, letting the audience take in all her glory. Her fur coat with rhinestone lapels, high heels, and her iconic Gibson 1961 custom white electric guitar. She strums the first note of her song, which couldn't have been more fitting for the moment. It was Didn't It Rain, a classic American song covered by huge artists from Mahalia Jackson to Johnny Cash. But her version of the song was a head-turner. She brings it down with this ecstatic guitar playing and singing that people have never heard in their lives. She's shredding the electric guitar, hopping around the stage, and belting the lyrics like her life depends on it. I begin to play. I know it rain. You know it rain. Oh, how it rain. Rain too long. The audience was full of young people in complete awe of this black woman, who at this point was about to be 50 years old. This was a far cry from Cotton Plant, Arkansas, where Rosetta had grown up playing gospel music. Growing up in the South, she could have never dreamed of where her guitar would take her. And all of it came from her roots, singing and playing in the Black church. Gospel was the music that built the groundwork of Rosetta's signature sound. If you listen closely, you can hear gospel in so many genres, R&B, soul, pop, and of course, as we know from Rosetta, rock. Rosetta would go on to bring the sound of gospel music to the mainstream. Her style and the sound of her electric guitar would become the backbone of rock music and influence the biggest artists of all time. Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Chuck Berry, Keith Richards, and even Aretha Franklin credit her with being influential to them and to the world. But living the rock star life came at a cost. I think she dealt with a lot of internal conflict, feeling as though she had let people of the Pentecostal church down, that she had let her Black community down. So how did a queer Black woman from the church become one of the richest musicians of her day and change rock and roll forever? I'm Takara Small, and from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. Today, the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's a warm Saturday evening in Chicago's south side in 1927. Katie Bell is walking down the street with her 12-year-old daughter, Rosetta. It's bustling. Folks are sitting outside their homes, chatting it up with neighbors, foods being barbecued, jazz and blues are blaring from the radios, and some folks are even jamming together. You could hear the drawl of the harmonica and the plucking of the guitar. Little Rosetta was soaking up the sounds. Chicago in the 1920s was a vastly different place than it had been just a few years earlier. Because of Reconstruction in the South, there was a huge wave of African Americans making their way to northern urban cities. It was known as the Great Migration. Rosetta and her mother Katie had arrived in Chicago in 1921, when Rosetta was just six years old. And with the flocks of new people came new music. And so this was a time where Sister was exposed to more secular music. Just hearing it casually on the streets would expose her to all these different facets of the world. That's Aaron White, a writer and journalist who wrote about Sister Rosetta for Afropunk. It's a music festival as well as a cultural zeitgeist for Black people, Black musicians in punk and rock and roll music which is a world that might not exist, or at least not in the way it does, without Sister Rosetta. But before she became a rock and roll icon, she traveled with her mother across Chicago and all throughout the South, or what was known as the Bible Belt. She was intermingling with people of all walks of life, hearing different languages and listening to very different music. Katie didn't like Rosetta hearing blues and jazz, or what was known as secular music. She and her daughter were devout Pentecostal Christians, which meant they should only be listening to church music. But Rosetta was a sponge. The music she heard on the streets would make its way into her performances at church, and it thrilled the audience. People would whisper in the pews, did you hear little Rosetta today? That girl can really sing. Katie knew her daughter had a special gift, and she thought that gift was best lent to the church. They went everywhere together, spreading the gospel through the Church of God in Christ, also known as Kojic. While Katie would evangelize with her Bible, her daughter would do the same in song. And as the years passed, so did Rosetta's reputation for being an excellent musician and performer. When Rosetta was around 18, she and her mother met Thomas J. Tharp, a Kojic preacher who also went by Preacher Tommy. Rosetta's mom saw Tommy as a good partner for her daughter and a good addition to their duo. He would preach, Katie would evangelize, and Rosetta would perform. But Tommy saw something else. He was an opportunist and saw this offer to be with Rosetta as his ticket to stardom. They ended up teaming up together 
Katie, Tommy, and sister Rosetta Tharp traveling all over the country, performing together. The two wed the next year in 1934. Now she was Rosetta Tharp, but she wasn't the sister Rosetta Tharp just yet. First, she needed to make a name for herself and establish her signature sound. Rosetta and Tommy played in the Miami Temple, which was the most prominent Kojic church in the South. And Rosetta started to get some serious attention. This was a really, really prolific gig. Not only was it super popular amongst locals, their revivals actually played on the radio. Up until now, Rosetta had only been known within church circles, and gospel music was really just heard inside the church. But with this new gig, her music was reaching a wider audience. While things in her career were going well, things in her relationship, well, were not. I think that it was clear to anybody on the outside that sister Rosetta Tharp was the most talented person in this trio, and that Tommy was kind of biting off of her, riding her coattails a little bit. Rosetta's very intuitive mother had a suspicion that Tommy wasn't being faithful. She had heard through the grapevine that he had a girlfriend in another state. And it didn't stop there. It's hard to hear, but people say they witnessed him beating Rosetta and chasing her down the street. Only for the next morning, both of them to be in front of the church preaching and playing music as if nothing had happened. But what was going on at home didn't stop Rosetta or her ambitions. Now 23 years old, Rosetta knew that to break into the music world, she had to get out of the South and out of her marriage. She gathered her courage and bought two tickets to New York City, one for her and one for her mother. She was done playing the preacher's wife. Everything changed for Rosetta when she got to New York City in 1938. While on an audition, she met the famous talent scout John Hammond, who got her a gig at the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was the hottest spot in New York. Jazz legends like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, Nat King Cole, and Billie Holiday were regular performers. The chance to play there could rocket an artist to stardom. And Rosetta knew it, but she also knew it meant she'd have a choice to make. Playing her music in a secular, even a hedonistic place like the Cotton Club might push her out of the church forever. Her decision to leave the church wasn't one that happened overnight, and it wasn't a very decisive decision, but it was a decision nonetheless. More on that after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's 1938, and New York City is poppin'. Doing her thing on the famed stage of the Cotton Club is Rosetta. She can finally cut loose and explore the reaches of her musical talent. It's thrilling, but the Cotton Club was also a lot to take in for a church girl from the South. It was modeled famously after idyllic depictions of a mythified, bucolic antebellum South, complete with old plantation-style decorations. Yeah, if it existed today, it would probably be criticized, to put it lightly. But it was the 1930s, and in those days, there wasn't a hotter ticket in town. Picture women in shimmering short skirts getting tossed in the air to the sounds of blaring horns and jazz piano. And next to all the scantily clad women was Rosetta, rocking on the guitar and belting it out. She wasn't a dainty flower like some of the other girls. She was a powerhouse. She commanded the stage. But off the stage, it was a different story. See, she was playing for a largely white audience in a club that mimicked a cotton plantation. But with it came good money. So during Rosetta's time at the Cotton Club, where she was making $500 a week, which was incredible for a rockin' Black girl from Arkansas who grew up wearing hand-me-down and secondhand clothes. She was a popular attraction, if no other reason, for the novelty value of a Black genre-bending gospel act. Rosetta was being her authentic self on stage and was praised for her talents. For her mostly white and secular audience, this was something they had never heard before. But it came at a price. She began to popularize gospel music while also earning disdain from within the Black church and the Black communities. Gospel singers were expected to sing gospel music in the church. Rosetta was not only performing for a secular audience, she was using music that was meant for God and playing it in a nightclub? That was a big no-no. The community back in Arkansas was shocked to hear that their little Rosetta was singing in a sinful place like the Cotton Club. But what shocked her church also thrilled talent scouts. A big record label agent named Irving Mills saw her act and he offered her an exclusive publishing contract with Decca Records. So what that meant was basically she would get the rights to her music and her songs. This was a huge, this was very transformative in her step into the secular world. Rosetta knew what she was risking by making a secular record. Her church-going fans might never accept her again. If she was going to take that chance, she was going to make the most of it. And I've got to say, that first record was a banger. The first song she records with them is called Rock Me, and it becomes a hit. It's mostly just Rosetta and her twanging guitar, but it's electrifying. You can hear the rock flare in her voice. Her explosive belts are filled with attitude. She sounds like she's really giving it to a guy that's done her wrong. It's a rendition of a Tommy Dorsey song from 1937, 
but she put her own spin on it by replacing the lyrics, Now won't you hear me singing, with Now won't you hear me swinging. To swing meant to revel in rhythm, to feel the beat in your body. It was scandalous. It was literally that small to where people were like, oh, I know what this means. But the best moment of the song comes when Rosetta gets to that chorus. She belts Rock Me with a little more oomph than the sweet white Tommy Dorsey. When she says Rock Me, just the growl in her voice signaled to people, <laughs> hmm, something's going on here. Something kind of grimy and dirty is happening here. She might have scandalized the gospel world, but for Rosetta, this was a landmark moment. She was getting to express her most genuine self, her identity as a Black woman of faith and even her sexuality. And she was getting paid for it. She was bringing these sounds to the mainstream for the very first time. Suddenly, she was booking gigs to perform at the Apollo Theater, Cafe Society, Carnegie Hall, the biggest clubs in New York. By the time she was 25, she was rated one of the finest musicians of her time. She was rich and famous and gospel's first superstar. She spent most of her time in the 40s on the road, headlining shows for black and white audiences. Long before the Civil Rights Act of the late 60s, the ugliness of segregation was in full effect. And there was no way that Rosetta, even with her fame and adoration, wouldn't have felt it. For black musicians like Rosetta, that ugliness was felt out on the road, especially when it came to finding a place to crash after shows. You couldn't just pull up to the hotel where white musicians stayed and expect to get a room. There were limited options. First, they would have to go downtown to see if there was a motel that would take them. And if there wasn't, their next stop would be to a barber shop or a beauty shop to ask Black residents of the town to literally take them into their homes, which they did. Jim Crow made everyday things like finding a place to sleep or finding a place to eat a meal way more complicated. And racism even showed its grisly face when she went to a fancy dress store in Virginia. She tried to purchase the clothes with cash. They called the police, arrested her. But when they took her down to the station and realized who she was, all the apologies. She ended up getting the clothes for free. But Erin says Rosetta reacted the way a lot of Black folks did in those times, with her head held high. She didn't really complain about that. I feel like for a lot of Black Americans, it just was what it was. She just kind of did her best and presented herself unapologetically for the world to enjoy. And all the music she was making and all the tours she did seemed to have paid off. Black folks were singing along, and so were white folks. And when she performed again in front of white people, they embraced her so radically because of her religiosity and because of her music. Rosetta's star was on the rise, and her biggest hit yet was just around the corner. In 1944, she came up with a new song called Strange Things Happen Every Day. 
It's an upbeat, catchy record, stripped of everything except for her powerful voice and rhythm section. Up till now, Rosetta's songs were mostly takes on gospel hits or big band records. But this new song was the birth of a new sound. In fact, it's acclaimed as one of the first rock and roll songs of all time. And it was the first gospel song to cross over on the Billboard R&B Top 10 charts. That was the first time that that had ever happened. So that's a real historic marker. 1944 was the year of triumph. It was also the year she reinvented her identity as Sister Rosetta. Her new tagline? America's greatest spiritual singer. And soon after, she met a very special gospel singer, Marie Knight. And they'd go on to have much more than a musical partnership. Stay with us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. It's 1946 in Harlem, and hundreds of people are pushing up against each other to get a look at Mahalia Jackson. She was one of the biggest gospel stars at the time, and she was standing on stage, dressed to the nines, for a concert with a choir she was leading. As the choir sang behind Mahalia, another woman emerged and quickly made her way to her own microphone. The choir hushed as her low and elegant voice spread through the crowd. This was Marie Knight. Marie was an up-and-coming gospel singer, described as a handsome woman. Sister Rosetta had no idea who this woman was at that moment, but she was entranced by her talent and, I'm sure, her beauty. Sister Tharp, in attendance, heard her, and, you know, immediately was drawn to her, her voice, and wanted to collaborate with her. She thought they'd make a great duo. Marie, the pianist and singer with a gentle alto voice, and Sister Rosetta, the guitarist and belter. They complimented each other. And she just loved her voice and wanted to collaborate with her. And kind of the rest was history. Marie Knight says, it was just on. They began recording songs together as a duet, most notably a track called Up Above My Head, which became a hit. Then they recorded You Gotta Move, which highlights the gospel call-and-response technique that later emerged in soul music. They hit the road and began touring, 
What was unique about their musical partnership was that they didn't need a band. They were the band. They each played instruments just as well or better than any band could. And they weren't reporting to any tour managers or had men telling them what to do. They were in control of their sound and their business decisions. The music they made was like they were in a world of their own. They were so bonded musically. Their chemistry and partnership on stage mirrored their relationship off stage. Marie and Rosetta started seeing each other romantically. Marie even moved in with sister Rosetta, who was still living with her mother Katie at the time. Up to this point, the world knew Rosetta had been married to preacher Tommy. But how open her bisexuality was among the public? We don't know. But judging by the times, being black and queer was not something you'd want to spell out on your forehead. So, I mean, gay people have always been around. Gay people aren't new. But you could not be out and gay. Having the world learn about their sexuality would have been a huge risk. Coming out about the truth could endanger their lives. It would be your life. She would be called a bull dagger, first of all. And she would probably be, be-, be beaten by men. You-, you couldn't do that. But the two took a gamble and risked it for love. Amongst friends and family, it was known as an open secret. Obviously, she wasn't out and couldn't safely be out. It was kind of a wink and a shh. They could chalk up their closeness to being just a great musical duo or really great roommates. But it was kind of safe to be a single woman living with your friend. Although to me, that raised some flags. <laughs> I said, oh yeah? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> it's like the friend you bring to Thanksgiving. This is my friend. But because they were singing mainly gospel music together, the music of God, the last thing anyone would think is that these two women were gay. But I think that the cover of Christianity kept it. It's like, oh, this is sanctified music. Close observers, though, might have been able to pick up on the hints they were more than just musical partners. People were able to intuit sex, sexuality, freedom, living in the body, all of these things from the way that they interacted with each other on stage and musically. The two couldn't help their magnetic connection, and the music was a way to express it. Every night, they were rocking the house together, just the two of them, without another soul on stage. They tried to keep the secret under wraps, but at the end of the day, even if they suspected something, church folks were willing to look the other way, because Sister Rosetta was a bona fide superstar, and a wealthy one at that. She grossed $24,000 in the month of March in 1949. When you take that number, it is estimated that she made $200,000 that whole year. $200,000 in 1949 would be $2.5 million today. Which is a ton of money. Sister Rosetta was racking up some serious cash. And when she went back on tour that year, she made sure that she and the band traveled in style. They were riding in a custom bus that Sister Rosetta owned. She had her name emblazoned on the side of it. And inside, she removed the seats to make way for a killer dressing area. Not only did she buy a tour bus, she had a white man driving it. Hello? She had money, honey. 
And she was also giving out money to fans she saw on the road who looked like they needed it. And all that success, it won people over. Once Pentecostals back home realized how famous she was internationally, they accepted her once again. She had transcended what's acceptable to being an international star. So now it's kind of okay you're a little gay. I'm sure Sister Rosetta being her unabashedly authentic and shameless self was part of the reason why they loved her. Sadly, her relationship and musical partnership with Marie Knight didn't last long. In 1950, Marie experienced a tragedy in her family. The trauma and grief proved to be too much for the duo, and they split up for good. The 1950s also brought the end of Sister Rosetta's rocketing stardom. The music that she brought to the mainstream began fading into the background as the young, white male musicians started getting more notice on the radio. Teenagers sipping milkshakes, teenagers wearing skirts, teenagers out listening to that loud rock music. So the teen culture basically bumps her back, back kind of to obscurity. Sister Rosetta had paved the way for popular and rock music, but now she was getting shut out of it. She's close to her 40s, very Christian. The sound is old. She just basically gets bumped out of the times. But there was one young artist who recognized Sister Rosetta's genius. He loved her sound and her stage presence, and he wanted to be just like her. You may have heard of him. His name was Elvis. And this isn't just speculation. We know that Elvis was low-key obsessed with her because he said so to some of Rosetta's old tour mates, the Jordanaires. Later on, the Jordanaires go on to become Elvis Presley's backup singers. And they spoke nonstop about how much this man loved and worshipped her, so much so that he was going to copy her. He was so impressed and amazed by her that he wanted to have exactly the people that she had around him. You might recognize some of Rosetta's signature style in some of Elvis's greatest hits. The shredding of the electric guitar, the growl in her voice, the charisma as she talked to the audience. It had permeated the masses and was now taking on a new shape, form, and look. While the new young generation had pushed Rosetta to the sidelines in America, she was quietly and patiently awaiting her rock and roll takeover across the Atlantic. I would say 100% she is the direct cause of the British invasion. In 1957, as Elvis's popular new song, Jailhouse Rock, and Little Richard's hit, Tutti Frutti, were blaring on the radios, Rosetta was writing and making music in her home in Philadelphia. One day, she got a call from the British jazz musician named Chris Barber. He wanted her to go on tour with him and his jazz band in England for a month. Barbara knew how special the rhythm and blues coming from America was, especially the music Rosetta was making, which was so unique in that genre. He was known as one of the few to help bring the sound across the Atlantic to create the British beat boom of the 1960s. So Sister Rosetta arrives in London to play a show with Barbara's band. Brits had never heard of her, nor had they seen her before. 
And the British people have some questions. They're asking her all these questions like, what are you doing here? Like, who are you going to convert to your religion? You can imagine Sister Rosetta brushing past them in her evening gown, leaving the room in a quiet but confident stride, headed to Cheswick Empire Theatre in London. Rosetta cleared her throat, picked up her electric guitar, and opened her mouth to sing. And once she started playing for them, all the questions stopped. All the hard questions she didn't know how to answer. And it's like the world there flipped on a dime. They had never heard this music before live. The fusion of rock and gospel. They had heard gospel, and again, like, they had the records. But I distinctly remember the bad British voiceover saying, we, we're not even here yet. We don't play electric guitar yet. She was warming up England for the cultural phenomenon that was about to rock the world by the mid-60s. What was known as the British Invasion. Funny is there was no screaming girls. It was all dudes. This countercultural movement led by rock and pop musicians like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Yardbirds. Rock music was invading. The great British invasion of music happens in response to Sister Rosetta Tharp going to Europe. Sister Rosetta's sound was relevant again because they recognized its uniqueness and its influence on the rest of the genre. Eric Clapton first heard her in a UK revival and was like obsessed with her before he joined the Yardbirds. She's everywhere. She's everywhere. Her fame was exploding, and this was considered the second peak of her career. It was in 1964 that Sister Rosetta played that famous concert at a train station in Manchester. There aren't many recordings of her at the time, but thankfully that show was taped, and let me tell you, it's badass. She's literally singing in the rain and rocking out on her guitar without a care in the world. Didn't it, you know me, did it, didn't it? Hard like Lord, how it rains! Oh, I love you so. My English friends, forever and ever until I leave this world. Sadly, Rosetta's fame couldn't stop the passage of time and the health issues that came with it. So, just a few years after Sister Rosetta Tharp's stellar performance at Manchester, she would begin to experience symptoms from her diabetes, ultimately leading to a series of strokes and a leg amputation. Around the same time, Katie, Rosetta's mother, passes away. The woman who had stuck by her side through fame, fortune, love, and breakups was gone. The stress of the loss just added to Sister Rosetta's health issues, and she started retreating from the limelight. Sister Rosetta faded from the popular picture, and once she was diagnosed with diabetes and unable to tour as much as she did, her star began to die out. Sister Rosetta would perform for the last time in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1970. She belted out her song, This Train, an upbeat and explosive number. And it was performed so remarkably that you wouldn't have suspected she was ill at all. On October 9th, 1973, the night before Sister Rosetta was scheduled to record a new song, she suffered a fatal stroke. She was only 58. 
Marie Knight would return and be there for Sister Rosetta at the end. Marie did her makeup and dressed her for the funeral, but she would be one of so few to pay her respects to the legendary musician. She died in obscurity without so much as a headstone to mark her grave. Which is so shocking for a woman who was so famous and had left such a huge mark on the music world. It wouldn't be until decades later that Sister Rosetta finally got the recognition that she deserved. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. Brittany Howard, the lead singer of the Alabama Shakes, inducted her, channeling Sister Rosetta's brilliance as she played her hit, That's All, in front of the raving audience. But it's not just massive musical artists walking away touched by her legacy. Just watching the videos of her performances, she reminds me to be brave and to be proud of who I am. And as far as just being a powerful Black woman whose talent is undeniable, she inspires me to keep, to keep writing. To learn more about Erin White and her writing, see the link in our show notes. Next time on They Did That. She knew the stakes and just how important her case was to the Black community at large, but very specifically to the Black activist community that had essentially raised her. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by India Whitkin. Our associate producer is Serena Chow. Additional production help from Tiffany Walker. This episode was edited by Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our theme song and additional original music is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>